Are you in the right crowd this morning? This miracle story is about two crowds, two different crowds, and they run into each other. You ever heard someone use a vernacular phrase, I'll tell you what, Eric, that was just not my kind of crowd. You ever heard that phrase before? Well, uh, my, I have freakish interests that make me a little bit of a freak of nature. Um, and uh, one, one of mine is I, I love the law, and, and I, I, I love to engage lawyers. Uh, for example, a couple weeks ago, I was in, in federal court in Cincinnati and ran into a few of them. And, and I, I just love these men and women. Uh, they, they are brilliant. They are articulate. They're all alpha wolves. They're aggressive. They go for the jugular. And it's just fun for me to talk to them. I, I love that. And it's a further challenge to steer the conversation around uh, to spiritual things. That, that's, that's fascinating to me. And you may hear me say that story and say to yourself, Eric, that is not my kind of crowd. And I get that. But while uh, who cares about the freakish interests that I have and my crowds and your crowds, this miracle this morning Ask us the question whether or not we are in Christ's crowd. Now, while it doesn't matter uh, if you're in my interest crowd or I'm in your interest crowd, but what matters for time and eternity is whether or not in life we're with the crowd around Jesus. Because the whole world's made up simply of two crowds, a crowd with Jesus, and there's a spirit in that crowd, and there's another crowd. And there's a crowd that doesn't have anything to do with Jesus at all, and there's a different spirit in that crowd. Don't miss the crowd you want to live associated with as we look at this story in Luke chapter 7. Come there with me this morning. Don't shun the opportunity of crowding around Jesus Christ. If he is who he says he is, and he is, then the most significant crowd we could ever company with would be the crowd around Jesus Christ, our Lord. As you look out the window of this miracle, remember, that's the thesis of this series. The miracles of Christ are windows that we get to look out and see and understand the kingdom of God. As you look out this window this morning and notice these groups, which group are you in? Now before I read to you Matthew, Mark, Luke, third book in the New Testament, chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. Before I read that to you, let me tell you where we're going. First of all, since we're going to stare out a window and look out a window, the window of this miracle, I'm going to uh, first tell you what to look at. Have you ever been at a place and somebody says, oh, you need to go there and you need to see it. And you, you got there and it's like, what am I supposed to look at, you know? I want to tell you what to look at. So first, I'll give you three things to observe as you look at through this window. And secondly, this miracle of Jesus, the raising of the widow's son from the dead. This miracle 
will surface three of our critical needs. So we'll turn, second half of the message, look at those three needs that we have as we roll up next to this miracle. First, what to observe. Second, three of our critical needs. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, Luke 7, 11 through 17. The history of Jesus and his ministry. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding company, countries hear the word of the Lord. So first, what is there to see through this kingdom window? What are we to see as we peer through this window that Jesus installs with this miracle of raising this widow's son? The Arc de Triomphe in Paris is several stories tall. You can get on top of it and look out. And some of you have been to Paris and you've done that. Well, you really want to go there with a Parisian, a person who lives in Paris, who could tell you, now look over there. There's the center of the military headquarters for France. Look down the Champs-Élysées, and there's, there's the Louvre. You can, you can see it down there at the end. Look at those glass. Um, the, the, oh, I forgot. The glass triangles that are there. That's not what they're called, but anyway. Thank you, Frank, for trying to help me. I need a European, all the European help I could get this morning. Now, of course, you can recognize the Eiffel Tower because it's so tall. You can tell it. But, but if you're up, you know, if you get up there and you just start gawking around, okay, well, it's all right, I guess. But if you're up there with somebody from Paris, they'll say, look there, look there, look there, look there, and you'll pick it all out. Let me give you three things to pick out in looking through this window at its glory the first thing to observe is see this horrible day for this grieving mother in once Eden. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 is interesting because it gives us so much insight into the story. Verse 12, as he, Jesus, drew near the gate of the town, behold, a man had died. A man who had died was being carried out. Now this is how he is described. The only Son. So here you have a family burying the only son in the family. The only son of his mother, but one of the things said about his mother, and she was a widow. 
So here you have a woman who has already been through this drill once before. She buried her husband. Now, her social security in the first century, in a Jewish family, the son would care for his mother, her social security, her vitality, her hope for the future is now being buried. What we have here on this gurney here called a beer, it was kind of a... Uh, a, a, a gurney that had some pillows on it that kind of propped up the dead in a lying position, uh, uh, yet as if they were uh, uh, in repose and resting. They'd carry them on there, and they were. Uh, this was going to be a tomb that was hewn out in the rock, so they would uh, carry them out there, put them in the rock, cover the tomb, and that was the end. So here you have a widow who's bearing her only son. This is grief squared, more than double the grief. She's now alone in a hostile world, bereft of the comfort of her husband's support. Absent now her son's duty to honor her through caring for her as she went on. This moment is actually worse than that because it's the bitter end of a horrible day. Eric, what do you mean by that? Well, the text does not tell us why this man died. Did he die suddenly in an accident that day? Remember, the Jewish people do not embalm mortal remains. They bury you within 24 hours. So she's had the double whammy of could it have been a sudden death if he was younger? Or was it the inevitable result of a disease process that she was counting on and yet hit like a thud that day. He has died that same day they're burying him. So, I mean, things are stacking up. She's a widow. She's hoping for a future of being cared for by her son. He dies. Got to bury him. And, and, and they're going out in the city. Now, Jesus says, do not weep in verse 13. This word weep is an interesting word. It's to cry audibly so others could hear you. And here you have what is called by the text. Uh, a great crowd went with Jesus, verse 11. Verse 12, a considerable crowd was with this lady. Now, Nain wasn't a huge metropolis area. It's a two-bit hamlet. But it looks like to me with a great crowd that most of the city is there. And they're quiet following this woman. But it is not quiet as they follow her. Because what can be heard audibly are her sobs and her crying out and her grief. That's really fever pitch. That crowd is there. Now, in Jewish writings, the rabbi said there are certain things you can do to express love for neighbor. One of the things you can do is comfort them in their grief by being with them. So it was considered a loving act. And by the way, this is a little bit of an art that our culture is losing. Uh, while valued by generations gone by, um, newer generations place less value in being around people in death and grief. I think the rabbis were on to something in saying this is an expression of love. 
And so a considerable crowd follows this woman, but they're deathly quiet, but it's not quiet. You can hear her weeping. Have you ever been to a service where you hear a mourner take flight and crying? It just like grabs a hold of your heart and uh, squeezes it in half. See this horrible day for this grieving mother and once Eden. Secondly, the second thing to observe is see the category-bending powers of the kingdom of God. Can you imagine being one of these pallbearers bearing what was called in the text a beer? They're carrying the gurney to the cemetery. Maybe they'd done it before. And can you imagine what they were thinking when they went to bed that night? Uh, this week, uh, I thought of a quote, uh, of all things, off a golf course. Uh, ben and I, our son, uh, played in a father-son golf tournament in uh, West Virginia one year. And it was right after the kids, it, it might have been on Father's Day, and before Father's Day, the kids presented me with the golf club. Now, golf thing's expensive, and some clubs are terrible. I think the golf club cost $186. And it was a new utility uh, club, and I was just killing it. I mean, I, I, it was, I just loved that club. And I hadn't played with it very long, just had a few rounds in. So I'm in Beckley, West Virginia with Ben, and Ben is a great golfer. I'm at Glade Springs. And, um, but the problem is, the last six weeks, Ben has spent 12 hours a day uh, studying for the bar exam. He hasn't even touched a golf club, throws him in the car, and we take off. And so um, we, we didn't do the greatest. I think we were one under the first day and one under the second day. But we don't remember the score, but iconically, we remember the eighth hole in the Cobb course, which was, doesn't matter, it was the 17th hole. They started us off on the back, but we're on the eighth hole. 195 yards uphill, par three, and there's a big body of water off of the tee to my left, and I'm there, and I'm thinking, I'm so nervous. I want to do so well. I got a death grip on this club, and the, the harder I squeeze, the worse I'm golfing. I need to relax. There's only 10 more holes left in this event, and here we are trying to have a nice father-son thing, and I'm just so nervous, and I'm not enjoying any of this, and I'm going, I'm going to relax and enjoy this. Get, get rid of the death grip on the club. So I step up there on the par three, and I take a swing, and, you know, it's 195 yards. You want to hit it solidly, and I did, but I just, you know, had loosely, I, I got to loosen up, and that club takes off like a helicopter and goes out about 40 yards into the water and just, and I'm thinking, Father's Day, $186, Davy Jones Locker. You know, what in the world is that? And then suddenly, nobody knows what to say, you know. And so it's just real quiet on the tee. Nobody wants to laugh because they're feeling bad for me. And finally, the, the, we were playing with another father and son. And um, finally, the dad says, well, I'll tell you what, you don't see that every day. <laughs> And then we just all start laughing, you know, it's like, oh, man. I'm convinced that the pallbearers of that beer went to bed saying to themselves, you know what, you don't see that every day. And I'm convinced that considerable crowd that came out of Nain that was with that widow who was weeping were struck with the notion that, well, you don't see that every day. In verse 12, it says that the young man was dead, but it's framed in a grammatical structure with a verb that describes past action with abiding results that's not going to change. 
And Luke, as he's reporting this story as the narrator, is setting the reader up because he knows the outcome. Because, of course, Christ transformed that by bringing that young man back to life. Now, Jesus says two absurd things here. First, do not weep. Now, the considerable crowd that was with the lady and the great crowd that was with Jesus, two crowds meet there, uh, they all heard Jesus say that. What do you think their first impression was? Do not weep. Isn't grief a natural expression of this circumstance? Jesus, where are you going with this? Then he put his hand on the beer and proved that I don't care to be undefiled. I'm going to minister to this lady because, you know, Jewish people would become unclean if they touched something dead. Jesus stopped. And then he says something that's astounding. Young man, I say to you, arise. What, he talking, he's talking to the dead? What's that? By the way, here is where the preacher gets encouraged. Because Jesus delivers the word of God and wakes up the dead. Erwin Lutzer who was at Moody Church for so long. He actually followed Warren Wiersbe. Uh, he was there for, you know, 37 years. He was here last February. He used to teach a class on preaching at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. And the last day, it was kind of the class secret because you wanted to make it hit with force, but he'd load them all up in a van. They didn't know where they were going, and they'd roll up on a cemetery and he'd get them all out and get in a huddle and he'd say, all right, here's the assignment. I want you to go to a grave and I want you to preach for 10 minutes and then come back and we'll talk. They're going, what, what in the world is this? So then they'd stagger over there and they'd preach for 10 minutes and come back. And he'd say this, men, until you believe that the word of God is able to raise the dead, you are not prepared to preach. Think of Ezekiel. What do you think he felt like? Those old dry bones. All right, Ezekiel, preach to him. Oh, but the more he preached, the better it got. I know my own heart. I know what I don't bring to the task that I'd like to bring, but I want you to know that my confidence that anything would happen is still high, but it has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with the privilege I have to deliver what's here. Because from Genesis 1, we get the strong impression, and God said, let there be, and it was so. And God said, let there be, and it was so. We get the impression God's word's powerful, and here he is. Jesus delivers the word of God, and what happens? This young man comes back to life. If you're here this morning, you say, Eric, my marriage is dead. Eric, my soul is dead. I, I'm just not alive spiritually. I want you to know that God in Christ and through his word is in the business of waking up the dead. And it's the glory of preaching. It's what we pray for. It's what we yearn for. Around Jesus, slowly the expectation as you are next to him in the gospel gets to be, I'll tell you what, Something's going on around him. It's not natural. The only explanation is it is supernatural. The whole calculus of the situation changed when the powers of the kingdom rolled in. 
They came to understand the scope of his authority that knows no limits. Verse 16, there's a special word that's used, that's used in the Old Testament prophets. God visited his people. Uh, By the way, Andy showed me a a video of uh, police who are working hard in this tragic day where police are viewed in, in, in not good terms. Uh, They're doing everything they can to serve the community. And thank God for our police force. A grieved neighbor called the dispatch upset over boys playing basketball next door and making too much noise. Well, in order to honor her call, they rolled up on the basketball game, investigated, and found out that what was actually going on was a group of young men having the time of their lives in great competition on the basketball court, and it was just fine. Well, having rolled up and tried to figure out what's going on, they departed. They went and picked up Shaquille O'Neal, who apparently was someplace in the neighborhood. They bring Shaquille O'Neal, professional basketball player, a mountain of a man, about 7'3", and he's lost some weight, but, I mean, he's a very big man, very big, very big. And so he gets there and hops out of the cruiser, and they're going, Wow, there's Shaq. He's bigger than we thought he was. So he plays a little bit with him. And then, I suppose not everybody does this, Shaq was carrying around a wad of $100 bills. And he said, all right, get on the foul line. Give you $100 for every shot you hit. I'll tell you what, there was more interest in the foul line at that moment than there had been in a while. He starts passing out $100 bills. By the way, he has a habit of every once in a while, just for joy, of going to Walmart and running into somebody and saying, hey, what do you want? It's on me today. Just tell me what you want, and he'll do it. Now, those kind of visits, whether it's at Walmart or the basketball field, certainly change the demeanor of what's going on. In an infinitely more important way, God has visited our broken world in Jesus Christ. And he has shown us where we are headed. And he put this window up and said, that's what it's going to look like. And it's full of glory and life and a reversal of the ugly fortunes of this broken world. Now, third thing I want you to observe is this. See the expanding understanding of those around Jesus. Verse 17 And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. They were saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people. They were getting from, oh, some guy from Nazareth. Nobody knows who he was. Oh, wait a minute. This is a great prophet. Now, why would they have said that? Steve Martin read that passage out of 1 Kings 17. Remember, Elijah's exit was glorious in the fiery chariot. And so the Jewish folk, they always had a suspicion. Remember, when they observed the Passover meal, they would always set a place for Elijah because they just didn't know whether or not Elijah was going to come back. Maybe he'd come back and, you know, have a meal with them. And so uh, they, they thought, is this Elijah 2.0? Because Elijah had raised the son of a widow woman. Now, this miracle is fascinating because it debunks the theory that is something like, I'll tell you what, we relate to God on a contract basis. It's like, I believe, and God responds because I believe. By the way, I'm for belief. Jesus said in John 6, 47, he who believes has eternal life. 
Uh, the Apostle Paul told the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Uh, the author to the book of Hebrews said, without faith, it's impossible to please God. But I ask you, who in this story, before Jesus identifies himself, is noted for their belief? You say, oh, I'll tell you what, Eric, the raising of Jairus' daughter, it was Jairus' faith that's accented. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, that lady who touched the hem of his garment, you don't get things from Jesus unless you believe in him. You, you, and, 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 and belief is like an ATM. You take your belief card, you stick it in, and then God is like contractual. It's a transaction. I put in a little belief, and God throws out a little bit of what I want. Please note, nothing is said about anybody's faith here. Isn't that fascinating? God, who is free and who is gracious, will say more, full of compassion, imposes himself on this circumstance in the beginning he's unknown but when this story ends they recognize this must be something out of the ordinary is it God who's disclosing himself in the person of Christ be careful how we view faith I'm for faith but faith is not something we give to God so that we can get back something from God because our faith obligates him as if it was some kind of an ATM. We push the buttons and it comes out. Here Jesus comes on a situation. The dead man's faith is not accented. The widow's faith is not accented. But the whole situation is swallowed up in God's care for broken humanity. And God couldn't care for us more. And revealed himself in the midst of his care. There's an expanding understanding of who Jesus is. Is he a great prophet? That's what they're thinking at this point in the narrative. Now, what do we need in the wake of this miracle? This miracle awakens us to three of our great needs in a broken world. Need number one, we need to make sure we're gathering with the right crowd. It is not a coincidence that two crowds meet. The considerable crowd with the grieving, wailing, audibly weeping woman. And the great crowd with Jesus. The temperament of the crowd with the woman is quiet and grieving and they're all hurting and they've all died a thousand deaths for this woman because they're realizing we are walking her hope to the cemetery and we're burying it. But then there's another crowd who's already begun to be lit up with who Jesus is. The great crowd with Jesus meets the considerable crowd with this lady and they have a meeting just outside the gate of the city. It's fascinating. If you're from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, there's a place you can stand. They actually tore down Three Rivers Stadium. It used to stand right there. Where the Mahongahela and the Allegheny Rivers come together. They form the headwaters of the Ohio River right there. But it's really cool because two great streams come together. Here's two great streams, but they could not be more dissimilar. Notice the temperament of them. By the way, which crowd, which stream do you want to be in? Which seems the best to you? The contrast could not be greater. One is grieving, mourning, bearing hope. The other is happy, expectant, intrigued, and drawn to Jesus. Now, as soon as the miracle went down, verses 15 and 16, something happened. The mourning party ceased. 
In fact, this gal, she lost her congregation. But she didn't care because she joined the other band. Because it seemed a lot better to leave a crowd of death and dying and join a crowd of life and vitality. And that's what happens when we own Jesus Christ as our Savior. We leave. The wages of sin is death. That's what we get. We leave the crowd of death, and we come to the crowd of life. Now, just very simply, what crowd are you in? Are you crowding around Jesus, who is called in Scripture the Prince of Life? Every time my face is rubbed in death, I find more beautiful the Prince of Life. You know, Matthew was a liar and a cheater and did fraud for a living as a tax collector. Jesus just walked by and he said, Hey, Matthew, you want out of that crowd? That's a dying crowd. You come with me. You know, what, you know what he did? Matthew just got up and followed him. James and John were up there fishing on the Sea of Galilee. And they were making Zebedee and Sons, Inc. go very well. And they were dreaming about, you know, as soon as Dad retires, it's going to be better. We're going to get bigger ships, and we're going to get more fish, and we're going to make more money. And Jesus came by, and he said, hey, men, follow me, and I'll make you to become fishers of men. And you know what they did? They just got out of the boat. They just changed crowd. Let's not make faith too complex, as if we needed to be a rocket scientist or an MIT graduate to figure it out. All it is is leaving one crowd of the dying and laying hold of the crowd, the Savior Jesus Christ, the living, the resurrected one himself. Be reconciled to him. Have you met the Prince of Life? Are you in his crowd? I invite you to Jesus. If by appointment this week you'd like to talk to somebody, want to talk to somebody before you leave this morning, wouldn't it be great to start February 22 changing the crowds and coming to Christ? Now the second need is we need to live with the conviction that the man of sorrows is with us with his heart of compassion. Look at verse 13. And when, now this is very important, notice the title for Jesus here, the Lord. Now that title becomes super significant because only the Lord could raise the dead. And before he gets there, Luke says, and the Lord saw her and he had compassion on her. Now the Greeks, and you know the New Testament was written in their language, the Greeks viewed anatomically man's body as hosting the emotional part of us in our belly. It's why you read that odd phrase in the King James Version and you, know, you blush. It's like, oh, that's indelicate. He was full of bowels of compassion. It's like, oh, man, that don't sound, whatever that is. You know, I like the compassion part. What is that? It's because the Greeks viewed our emotional center in our belly. Now, a mountain person, and we have some great, now I come from good mountain stock, you know, we just pass around the phrase, you know, I just have a gut level feel about this. That's the same thing. Or, you know, if you've gone to college, you say, you know, viscerally, I just really felt it viscerally, you know. <laughs> it's the same thing. Here's Jesus. Don't miss this. 
he couldn't have a belly more full of compassion for you. That's amazing. We don't view him like that. But here is Jesus. He comes upon a circumstance that's grievous, a circumstance that's broken. What's going on in his life? He's overflowing with compassion. That's who he is. You say, Eric, you wouldn't believe what I'm going through right now. You wouldn't believe how hollow I feel. You wouldn't believe how depressed I am. You wouldn't believe how tough the circumstance is. I want you to know that Jesus is coming near to you, and he couldn't be more full of compassion. That's amazing. That's his heart for us. It's why he's a sympathetic high priest. In all things, he's experienced what we have yet without sin, and it's positioned him to be a faithful and sympathetic high priest. He's sympathetic. He feels with us. You say, Eric, I feel broken this morning. Jesus feels your brokenness. He's empathetic. He feels for us, and he's full of compassion. I was with a friend who was going through a really wrenching thing, and I sat with him. I just wanted to understand, and I said, look, tell me how are you? And he looked at me and he said, Eric, I'm simply walking with a man of sorrows. You know, Isaiah said, Jesus is a man of sorrows and one acquainted with grief. Because we can begin to grieve and we can sorrow and we can say to ourselves, it's a lie. Satan sells it to us. You know, nobody understands how I feel. How about the man of sorrows and one acquainted with grief who could not be more compassionately disposed toward us? I love Jesus. In these two crowds, in this meeting, in his heart of compassion, Godet said there's something striking about the unexpected meeting of the two processions. The train which accompanied the prince of life and that which followed the victim of death. Where are you this morning? Jesus has moved towards you with compassion. Remember how he got started with the Isaiah scroll, Isaiah 61, in Nazareth. They handed it to him. He changed it. He said, the spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach Good news to the poor. Remember the second line? And to bind up the brokenhearted. Well, did the old gospel writer write that old hymn, No One Understands Like Jesus. Because he's a man of sorrows. He's for us. If we know him, he's with us. Is that your conviction about Jesus? Here is vintage, compassionate Jesus initiating life-giving power. Finally, looking out this window, we need to count on the kingdom to restore what has been lost. Death had taken away this only son of a widow. Verse 15, my six favorite words in this story are Jesus gave him to his mother. By the way, they made a a Greek translation of the Old Testament with a fancy $5 name called the Septuagint. Now, in the Septuagint, when the Septuagint describes Elijah giving this son back to his mother, it uses these same six words that show up in this passage. There's an echo here. Jesus gave him to his mother. Life in a broken world is full of loss. I had a dear friend in a former ministry, sweet lady, her name was Dorothea. And uh, I pulled up next to her. I, I remember it as a Christmas gathering for seniors, and I sat with her, and I said, Dorothea, how you doing? And she put her hand on the table, and her nails 
I mean, she went to some salon that did extraordinary work. Her nails looked incredible. I said, Dorothea, look at your nails. That's amazing. They were all painted with stars. and I mean, it was all Christmassy red. I mean, it was beautiful. I mean, they're really works of art. I don't know who the artisan was that did that. I said, Dorothea, your nails look so good. She said, and she was at that point in a senior age, and she'd gone through some stuff. She said, Eric, she said, I'll tell you what. Piece by piece, the last few years, I've been shipping my body ahead of me onto heaven. Now about all that works is my fingernails. <laughs> she said, I thought I'd at least take care of the last piece I had left. <laughs> I loved her sense of humor. By the way, I loved her spirit too because she, as Vernon Ground said, was making the most of a diminished thing. But I want you to know that in this broken world, here's what it gives us. It gives us subtraction and loss. Life is full of subtraction. Friends, fortunes, jobs, houses, cars, health. And then finally, life. And death is the ultimate creator of loss. I lost my father in 2013. We were very close. I thank God for my dad. He went down with a bad disease, and we all knew he was going to die, and it got dicey at the end, and we knew it was coming, but it hit with so, such force, it was extraordinary. I never faced great sadness before. And it dawned upon me with strong conviction that this old broken world just keeps taking from us. And I was drawn to 1 Thessalonians 4.17 which says we'll meet the Lord in the air and we will be, and here's the phrase, together with them. I love those two words. Because that's the Apostle Paul's equivalent of Jesus gave him to his mother. Vance Havner, who went through Calvary Baptist Church in a former generation on the circuit and preached here several times. I loved Vance Havner. He's a mountain preacher who lived on Black Mountain, the other side of the mountain from the Montrose Retreat and Billy Graham. They were big buddies. And he was a mountain preacher. His preaching was interesting because he would study the passage and then he'd come up with pithy mountain phrases that would bring that passage to life. He started preaching when he was a teenager and it was back in the days where train transport was more common than it is now. And his dad would take him down to the train to go to the city where he was going to preach. And he'd get on the train and invariably when he'd return, he would look out the window, and on the platform, standing in the same place, would be his dad. And invariably, his dad would say exactly the same thing to him every time he disembarked the train. He'd say, well, Vance, how'd you get along? And his dad was a joyful follower of Jesus. He embraced Jesus and went with his crowd, and he died and went to heaven. And Habner, in the grief of his father's death, concluded that someday God would call him in death 
as it were, with a metaphor to get on the train and go to heaven. And he said, you know, I'm going to roll into Grand Central Station in heaven. And I'm going to look down on the platform. And there will be standing my dear old dad. And I'll get off the train. He said, I know ahead of time what he's going to say. He's going to say, Vance, how'd you get along? What a hope. What a crowd to hang out with. The Jesus crowd. A crowd full of life and hope and vitality. There's other crowds. Let's relish being in this crowd and find our high joy in him. Father, thank you for this miracle which brings us to life. Thank you for the miracle of salvation, the miracle of the power of Christ at work in life. Thank you for hope. Thank you that we're following the prince of life. Now lift up our spirits. Work with your power in our lives. Remind us of what is ours in knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, listen to us pray right now as we each individually respond to this message. Bring our hearts out to you. Reinfect us with this hope. Pick up our spirits. Open our hearts for those who have not yet come to follow Jesus.